Section 18 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 15, The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 18. A Prisoner in Ruhleben, 1915, by Geoffrey Pike. The author of the following narrative left London in September 1914 and set out for Berlin, unknown to the German authorities, in quest of such information and experience as a press correspondent might gain under such conditions. Not long after his arrival in Berlin, he was arrested without explanation and put in one prison after another until finally he was transferred from solitary confinement to the prison camp for civilians at Ruhleben near Berlin. From the latter prison, wonderful to relate, he made his escape, in company with a fellow prisoner, July 9, 1915, and succeeded in making his way by night to Holland, and thence to London. The Editor. The first time I saw Ruhleben, it was already dusk. There were six inches of snow upon the ground, and several degrees of frost. The soles of my boots were worn away from walking up and down the cell. I reckoned that I had altogether walked 1,730 miles up and down those 11 feet. I walked with my sock feet upon the ice and snow. It was very cold. After we had passed along a brick wall and had been admitted at a door halfway along, I found myself in a square. In the center of the square was an electric standard with an arc light which flickered. Beneath this arc light walked up and down hundreds of dark couples. They walked energetically and seemed to have some object in doing so. I learned later that it was in order to keep warm. I was taken away to fill up my name on a slip and for the policeman who accompanied me to hand over my money. I was given a receipt for the greater part of it and was handed over about 30 marks in cash. There was a large map in the office and for the first time since October I saw where the line was on the western front. The last news that I had had was just before I got over the frontier. Then the great retreat of the Germans to the end was in full swing. Of this, the German public heard nothing but that their right wing had slightly altered its position backwards, um strategische Gründe, for reasons of strategy. And then, much later, it was noticed that the daily reports contained mention of places that had been captured in the great advance. Gradually, the idea filtered through to the mind of the German public that they had retreated. The map with its flags and pins absorbed me immensely. I had not seen anything like it for more than four months. Then a soldier took me. We went down alleys, through doors, everywhere there were people. The place was crowded with them. I went outside into the snow and up a staircase outside. I sat on a straw sack on the floor, and so did everyone. I lived for months in that place. It was impossible to stand upright in it, and at one spot the snow came gently through the roof. It was here I slept. The atmosphere was as thick as cheese. Nobody took his clothes off, or at best changed into others. We were so closely packed that it was impossible to put one's arms above one's head. The light went out, and an hour later there was silence. I could not sleep. It was intensely cold. I reckoned that there was one half square inch of window space per man, and my own particular half square inch was eighteen feet away around the corner. These lofts in which we slept were the gables of the stables. 
In this loft there were two hundred people in four rows, two back to back in the center and one on each side. The people on the side, if tall, were unable to stand upright. The floor could not be seen for huddled forms that covered it. No one will ever know how much hope, how much despair, how much determination, how much suffering was hid in each of those two hundred huddled heaps. The charm that I found in Huleben was purely relative, and it soon wore off. It is difficult, perhaps, for those whose tongues are only limited by what they have to say to understand how intense the pleasure of mere intercourse can be. I would lie back upon my sack and just listen to people borrowing spoons from each other or cursing each other for mutual coffee slopping. A universal shout of laughter would make me warm with delight, and a continual cry to someone to shut up would make me pause over every delectable syllable. Less, however, was the pleasure I took in the physical surroundings. It was my first morning there. I did nothing. I lay huddled on my sack of straw, vainly hoping that I might one day know again the meaning of the term warmth. But it was not long before a cry arose from the far-off depths of the loft, of, Everyone outside, please, and I had to make a supreme effort to move my wretched carcass. I was still grasping my coffee bowl in a frantic attempt to get heat, long since flown. I stumbled numbly up and toward the door, and after passing two hurrying people with brooms, went out into the snow. It was very cold. There was a wind that cut. I found the scene of the night before repeated. Hundreds, thousands of forms, black against the snow, were moving like ants in every direction. What was everybody doing? I must find out and get something to do as well. I was standing thus when two dimly remembered figures suddenly laughed and clasped me by the hand. They were two old Cambridge friends, people I had never expected to see again, and whom I had completely forgotten. I found a very large Cambridge and Oxford colony, and we were all very merry. I still had nothing but a thin summer suit and a perfectly diaphanous shirt. The soles of my boots were worn away, and I had worn my one collar for sixteen weeks. My friends swept me away and clad me from head to foot in clothes that made my body glow with warmth. All of them gave me something, and I should have attained the proportions of a prima donna had I accepted everything in which they tried to wrap me up. My friends and their friends not merely clothed me but fed me for the first few days, gave me stores and books, bored themselves with my company, and left not a stone unturned to bring me back to life. It was not merely my friends. People I had never seen before were continually doing things for me. Men whose purse was short and who had a limited amount of parcels sent them from home. The commanders of the camp and the barracks were soldiers. To the latter we gave money to the former groveling respect. For a considerable time, all newspapers were forbidden, and Vorwerts, or any English paper, was strictly forbidden at all times. Nevertheless, I always saw all the German newspapers, including Vorwerts and Maximilian Hardin's paper, the Zukunft. We had the number that was suppressed by the government in the spring. We had a regular subscription to the Times, and never a week went by without our seeing that or some other English paper. One method would be detected by the military, and we would discover another. Some men used to earn their living by getting hold of the English papers and letting them out at sixpence to one shilling per hour. It resulted in there being a species of club of persons who subscribed to obtain the news. Nearly all German soldiers are venal, as long as there is no risk attached to the service involved, 
and the Times is freely sold in Berlin. The complete disorganization that reigned in the camp for the first few months made it possible to do almost anything. I spent the first ten days of my stay at Ruleben trying to find out if there was any chance of obtaining an exchange of prisoners. At the end of that time, I not only came to the conclusion that there was none, but also suddenly got taken ill with double pneumonia. That evening, the loft captain sent for the one man in the camp who boasted any medical knowledge. The long and the short of the matter was that for days I lingered at death's door in the atmosphere of that loft. My friends nursed me day and night, taking it by turns to sit up with me. They got hold of the most wonderful things to feed me on, and heaven only knows where they got them in that place. They had been continually urging the military doctor to come and see me, but he always replied that I could come and see him between nine and ten any morning that I cared to. One evening, thinking that they would not be able to keep me alive throughout the night, my friends got hold of the commander of the camp and induced him to telephone to the doctor, who was in Berlin on pleasure, to return at once. He did so. The doctor's mentality as regards myself when he arrived was, is he dead? If not, why not? He gave me two aspirins and remarked that I was too ill to be moved, remarking a little later in the week that I was not ill enough. He had me both ways. He never came to see me again. During the weeks that followed, I spent day and night upon my back. I was too weak to do a thing for myself, and during all that time, with all the long days and nights to get through, I became more and more of a daydreamer. The misery and futility of such a life took hold of me, driving me to the determination to do something, anything to avoid any more of it. The determination to escape arose without any thought as to how it was to be done. It was not for several days that I even began to consider any plans. I had seen so little of the camp that I was untrammeled by any awe of the authorities. I knew that if I should eventually take on the idea and stick to it long enough and hard enough, I must pull through. The narrative goes on to indicate the insuperable difficulties and dangers that appeared to beset every plan of escape. Then the author made the acquaintance of a man who was ready to plot the way of escape with him. Together they studied every possibility. The way that finally led to success is not disclosed, since under the conditions which war imposes, it would not be discreet. The whole scheme worked most beautifully, and it is a matter of the keenest regret, the regret of an artificer at having to conceal his handiwork from the sight of men, that both my friend and I have agreed that until the German military authorities have discovered how we accomplished it, or circumstances rendered discretion nugatory, the secret shall not pass our lips. The plan was supremely obvious, and it still remains there for any one of the denizens of Ruleben, whom it stares in the face and who cares to take the risk. After reaching Berlin, the two friends provided themselves with food and other supplies for travel by night across the country to the Dutch border. The author, weakened by his long illness, was compelled at times to rest every twenty minutes during their stealthy tramps through the darkness along hedges and in byways and at one time his friend was about to leave him apparently dead by the roadside when a last ray of hope restrained him. Thus, proceeding amidst the greatest hardships, they at last reached the border by night and met a friendly Dutch sentry, who permitted them to push on to their destination. And as we walked down a rough country lane at the end of which, not far away, was England, our jolly Dutch frontier guard, who had taken us for smugglers, said, You see that red roof cottage over there? I should think I do, I replied. 
I've been crawling about on my belly in mud all day in order to keep out of its sight. Well, he remarked, it's been a close thing for you. That cottage is in Holland. The rain from its roof drips off in Germany. End of section 18. This recording is in the public domain.